This is The Guardian. Investiere in dein Wissen mit diesem Podcast. Investiere in deine Zukunft mit X-Trackers ETFs. Unser Anspruch ist es, dich zu inspirieren, deine finanzielle Zukunft selbst in die Hand zu nehmen. Investiere Schritt für Schritt mit X-Trackers, dem ETF- und ETC-Anbieter der DWS. Besuche xtrackers.de und starte jetzt. Zusammen wachsen. Investitionen unterliegen Risiken. Bei diesem Beitrag handelt es sich um eine Werbemitteilung, herausgegeben von der DWS International GmbH mit Sitz in Frankfurt. When the contraceptive pill was introduced in the 1960s, it promised a new era of freedom for women. It allowed women to sever the tie between sexuality and reproduction so that they could control their reproduction without their partner's knowledge or participation. But six decades on, that control can seem more like a burden. Women are still largely responsible for contraception and all the admin and side effects that can come with it. For men, there remain only two choices. Condoms or vasectomies. It's also reducing men's autonomy because men don't have any good options and we are going to hold you socially and financially responsible for any unintended pregnancies. And in some ways, that feels unfair to men because we're not equipping them with the tools to prevent unintended pregnancy. But that could finally be about to change. At the end of last year, a new male birth control pill entered human trials here in the UK. And there are several other serious contenders making their way down the pipeline. I do think we can genuinely say, hand on heart, that we're looking at good progress at the moment. So today, we're asking, what's been holding male contraceptives back all these years? And if we had a male pill, would men want to use it? I'm The Guardian science editor, Ian Sample, and this is Science Weekly. Lisa Campo Engelstein, you're a professor and director of the Institute for Bioethics and Health Humanities at the University of Texas Medical Branch. And one of your areas of interest is male contraceptives. So tell me, even though they started to be developed at the same time in the 1950s, why is it that women's contraceptive options have made it to market while men's have continually fallen by the wayside? Right. Well, I think there's a lot of reasons we can look at here, one of which is the social reasons. We conflate reproduction and women, and so we're much more likely to support research that upholds that conflation rather than research that challenges it. And so we've just poured a lot more money into women's reproductive health, whereas with men's reproductive health, it challenges our norms about gender roles. And so that's been a real problem that's been holding back the science, that it's emasculating for men, that the side effects for men are unacceptable, and that it's not men's responsibility. We see the same thing with vasectomy, where men are much less likely in almost all countries to get a vasectomy than women are tubal ligation, despite the fact that vasectomy is quicker, easier, cheaper, and safer. So we need to change that cultural norm in order to support a new male contraceptive coming through. And the conflation you're talking about, this narrative, that led to 
these disparities in research and, and funding, are those still around today? They unfortunately are. There are scientists who are working on male contraceptive and are having trouble getting funding. And pharmaceutical companies are not as interested in funding this. And they say the reason they're not interested is that this will not be lucrative. But if half the population of the world you know, is the potential market for their entire lifetime, it seems that even if a small percentage of them take on this drug, that could be lucrative. So there's potentially a big market out there. But so far, innovation in this field has not been great. There hasn't been a new male contraceptive that's reversible since the condom. And that was many, many decades ago. So, you know, there is a big gap in this space, for sure. That's Professor Chris Barrett, head of the Reproductive Medicine Group at the University of Dundee. He spent his career looking at male fertility and most recently has been investigating a non-hormonal drug that could work as a male contraceptive. About 30 or 40 years ago, people had trialled the idea of using hormonal contraceptives for men. And the results from those studies were generally very encouraging. But in the early 2000s, studies started reporting side effects. And these, added to the fact that it took a few months to stop sperm being made, a process called spermatogenesis, and a few months to restart it again, meant questions were raised about safety and applicability. So while some teams continued to work on addressing those issues, others started exploring non-hormonal options. It's now getting to the stage, I think, where we've got a reasonable number of potential approaches in the next five or ten years using non-hormonal contraceptive methods. There's also a scientific reason why male contraceptives have lagged behind. Options for women need to prevent one egg per month being fertilised, whereas for men, contraceptives have to block a whole load of sperm cells. Men produce a thousand sperm in a single heartbeat. You've got to stop all of those sperm. You've either got to stop them being produced or when they're produced, they've all got to be defective. So that's very difficult biology to start with. And we're still learning, you know, realistically about how to interrupt these processes safely. Despite this, researchers from around the world are finding drugs that can do just that. I asked Chris about the one he's investigating. Well, we're looking at a, a series of compounds that may affect the way the sperm move. Basically, sperm need to move from the vagina to the site of fertilization, which is in the tubes of, of, the, of the women. And they move that on their own motility. So it's the, their vigorous women, so to speak. And it's been shown in subfertile men. Some of those men have poor levels of, of sperm vigor uh, movement. So what we've been trying to do is mimic that by using a variety of compounds to try and stop sperm moving as well or stop them moving altogether. So is the aim that the drug can make the sperm essentially swim less well, but without affecting anything else in the body? That's the objective, yes. I mean, it's, it's quite, not quite easy, but, but there are a number of drugs that would stop sperm moving quite quickly, you know, within uh, minutes. But those drugs often are quite toxic to the rest of the body. So you've got to find something that's really pretty unique to the sperm or at least affects the cell, the sperm cell in a relatively unique way compared to other cells. 
and it, and it just takes a lot of time. Drug discovery is a very long process. Uh, it's a very complex process and almost always <laughs> results in failure, unfortunately. Your work is obviously at an early stage, but how might this drug be used if it does turn out to be effective? I mean, could a man pop it right before sex or would they need to be taking it sort of long term to suppress their sperm production, this spermatogenesis you were talking about before? So the way that we're looking at this is slightly different to the hormonal method. So the, the hormonal methods basically shut down the factory effectively. What we'd be doing, if you look in the analogy of a car factory, then we would be looking at once the cars are produced, just making it so the engines don't work. So we'd be looking at the very last stages of sperm production in men. So it's when the sperm are stored in the male reproductive tract, for example. So in theory, the compounds could act relatively quickly within, say, 24 hours, for example. You could, I guess, um, try and give the compounds over a longer period of time. Instead of, say, taking a pill once a day, you could maybe have a patch and could release the drug over, say, three or four months. That might be a way. The other way that it might be used is maybe the female could take this compound. But of course, then it becomes contraception, which is used by the female rather than the male. Let's talk about another non-hormonal pill that's just gone into phase one clinical trials here in the UK. It stops sperm production by blocking access to vitamin A. Can you tell me about this one, how that actually works, how blocking access to vitamin A should affect the sperm? Yeah, so this has been known for many, many years that blocking this pathway or interrupting or interfering with this pathway affects spermatogenesis and it's been very effective in animals and there's there's very preliminary data in humans related to that. I think we have to wait and see larger studies because the number of patients are pretty low as far as I can see from the data so far. But again, it's very exciting. I think the reality is that we need more than one method for men. One method may suit a man and, and another method might suit uh, another man. And there is another kind of male contraception that avoids hormones and doesn't involve changing the sperm or their production. Instead, it mimics a method we already have, vasectomies. So there's a number of approaches that have been used uh, which are basically trying to put gels into the uh, vas deferens, the last pipeline of where a sperm comes. And of course, that's what normally cut in a vasectomy. That's how vasectomy works. So these gels and a, and a series of compounds can be injected to block sperm transport effectively. Some of the compounds uh, work by not just blocking, but, but basically are toxic to the sperm cell at the same time. If you block the vas deferens, then... In humans and in many animals, sperm is still produced. So the factory keeps going. It's just the cars have got nowhere to go. And what they are, what happens then is the body basically uh, starts to, starts to absorb those sperm cells and, and process them. The immune system basically processes them. The challenges at the moment are there's very limited human studies uh, on these types of approaches. And one of the key questions is reversibility, because a contraceptive has to be reversible. Otherwise, you, you end up, you know, the same as having a vasectomy effectively. Chris, as a journalist, I report on advances in this field from time to time. And 
These drugs, they never seem to sort of quite clear all the clinical and regulatory hurdles and, and make it to the market. I mean, I've been writing about male contraception for as long as I've been in, in the business. And I mean, have, have I got the wrong impression, though? I mean, and if I haven't, I'm wondering what that's like for a researcher in this field. Yeah, I mean, you haven't got the wrong impression. You've got the right impression. I mean, we've been waiting for, you know, male contraception for a long time. I think the story behind the hormonal contraception now is, is clear for people and the way forward is clear. The, the trials at the moment funded by the American government, for example, look very, very promising. The non-hormonal methods, we've always wanted to find a quick kill answer rather than doing the basic biology. And I think that's caught us out on a number of occasions. But I do think we've come over the, the negative phase in this area. And I, I would anticipate we'd have a lot more high-quality progress in the next four or five years, for sure. With all of these male contraceptive options on the horizon, I asked Lisa the question that so often gets raised when it comes to this topic. Do men even want this? I think gender norms are changing, and we see that men are much more involved in childcare than they were decades ago, that the idea of a stay-at-home dad is now a, a category we understand, whereas before it might have been unheard of. So men are taking paternity leave when their children are born, and they're playing a much more active role. And what goes with that is that men are actually interested in male contraceptives. And we have that research going back for two decades, saying that some men are really interested in this. And it's especially younger men, more progressive men, more urban men, more educated men are saying, hey, I want this option too. And I'm sure if men took contraceptives and there were more options out there, that would also change gender norms. But what about women? Would they trust the opposite sex? Men are interested and women would trust their partners. And notice I say partners there, their long-term monogamous partners. The problem, I think, is, is that there's a disconnect between trusting your monogamous partner and trusting the man on the street. If we ask people if they're going to trust the man on the street with anything, most people say, no, I don't know that person or some abstract category of men in general. We defer to dominant cultural norms then and say, oh, no, men are irresponsible with reproduction. We can't trust them. But when we look at people's partners, these are people people have developed a life with, that they share a mortgage, that they may already have kids with. And so they've already screened this person and they're already in a trusting relationship. So it's not surprising then that they would trust their partners. And there's studies that show that from around the world, almost 100% of women would trust their partner. And just finally, I'm interested in whether you're optimistic or do you think, look, I've seen this all before, nothing ever happens? You know, I'd like to stay optimistic, but it has been half a century and we're constantly being told, oh, five to 10 years, five to 10 years. And it just hasn't come to market yet. However, there are now some nonprofit organizations, such as the Male Contraceptive Initiative, that are dedicating all of their funding to creating male contraceptives. And so with these continuing changing gender norms, with specific organizations devoted to this, that perhaps we can see a change, hopefully in our lifetimes. A big thanks to both Professors Lisa Campo-Engelstein and Chris Barrett. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Madeline Finley and Eli Block. 
It was sound designed by Tony Onachuku, and the executive producer is Ellie Bury. We'll be back on Tuesday. See you then. Hey, it's Mike here, one of the hosts of The Guardian's award-winning daily news podcast, Today in Focus. Every weekday morning, we bring you a single story, going beyond the headlines and taking you closer to The Guardian's global journalism. Combining personal storytelling with analysis, we take you inside the stories that matter most. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Guardian. Bereit für eine smartere Arbeitsweise? Mit Asana sorgen Sie in Teams jeder Größe für mehr Klarheit und Verantwortungsbewusstsein. Verknüpfen Sie Ihre Arbeit mit Unternehmenszielen, damit Sie immer wissen, was planmäßig verläuft und welche Arbeiten gefährdet sind. Erreichen Sie schneller bessere Ergebnisse und automatisieren Sie Workflows im Unternehmen. Asana – A Smarter Way to Work Kostenlos unter asana.com testen asana.com Investiere in dein Wissen mit diesem Podcast. Investiere in deine Zukunft mit X-Trackers ETFs. Unser Anspruch ist es, dich zu inspirieren, deine finanzielle Zukunft selbst in die Hand zu nehmen. Investiere Schritt für Schritt mit X-Trackers, dem ETF- und ETC-Anbieter der DWS. Besuche xtrackers.de und starte jetzt. Zusammen wachsen. Investitionen unterliegen Risiken. Bei diesem Beitrag handelt es sich um eine Werbemitteilung, herausgegeben von der DWS International GmbH mit Sitz in Frankfurt.